Hey everyone, welcome back to Here in Apologetics. I'm so pumped to join us today to have Dr. Michael Ray. He's the Reverend John A. O'Brien Professor of Philosophy at the University of Notre Dame. He's published work in like religion and analytic theology, metaphysics, feminist philosophy, authored many books and many lectures, and today we're gonna to be talking about divine hiddenness. So Mike, how you doing? All right, thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm super excited for today's conversation. We're basing it off of a book you wrote, um, earlier a few years ago that was published by Oxford University Press, The Hiddenness of God. Uh, we're just going to talk about the problem of divine hiddenness. So I'm excited, but before we get into it, I'd encourage you, if you're listening for the first time, be sure to like, subscribe, um, all that fun stuff. I appreciate your support. And if you value what we do, uh, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com. So should hear in apologetics. Uh, support would mean a lot. We're looking for a new patron every month. We got one for June. And if you're listening to this in July, that could be you. So that'd be huge. Um, Mike, thank you so much for coming on today. Do you want to talk a little bit about like what like inspired the work of like the hiddenness of God? Uh, yeah, so I, um, and I guess I started thinking about this issue. Um, who knows, maybe like early in childhood, but the first time I remember thinking about this issue uh, in a kind of serious way was in college. Um, I say this in the preface of the book, but I'd gone to church with a friend of mine and we got to talking after the service. And um, I forget exactly how we transitioned onto this topic, but at a certain point in the conversation, she just kind of broke down crying and said, you know, I've served God my entire life. Um, why can't, he's supposed to be my heavenly father. Why can't he just whisper, I love you, you know, once mm -hmm. in a while. And I thought like, yeah, I got no answer for that. Um, and I, you know, I'm someone who has not had a whole lot by way of, you know, vivid religious experience or anything. So that really sort of resonated with me. Um, when I was in college, I sort of gave it some thought and set it aside. Then I encountered the issue again, my first year in graduate school in a seminar taught by Tom Morris. Um, and he was introducing this, you know, uh, new interesting problem, the problem of divine hiddenness. And I kind of recognized that as like, yeah, that's what uh, this friend of mine was raising. And I got really interested in it in the context of that seminar. Um, but again, had other things to do. And so didn't really pursue it as a uh, research interest or anything like that until much later. I think it was... Um, maybe 2007 or so, I went to a conference and or I was preparing for a conference and it seemed like this issue would fit the conference topic. Um, and so that's around the time I started kind of really thinking about this in a research focused sort of way. Um, I wrote a couple papers between 2007 and uh, 2017, which is when I gave the Gifford lectures that were the basis for the 2018 book. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what you address in the book is the problem of the hidden God. Um, so when we're looking at divine hiddenness, like what is this problem of the hidden God that you lay out? Um, in the book, I basically um, lean on John Schellenberg's uh, formulation of the problem. So I, I won't claim this as my own formulation. This is uh, the formulation that Schellenberg, um, even, I would say, eventually settled on. Um, so as, as you'll know from reading the book, um, uh, 
yeah, I said that seminar that I took was in 1992. Um, uh, Schellenberg's book, uh, The Hidden God, came out in, uh, or no, sorry, Divine Hiddenness and Human Reason, the hidden, um, yeah, Divine Hiddenness and Human Reason, that came out in 1993. Um, and he's, kind of altered his formulations over the years, but uh, his more recent one, um, he relies on, um, he relies on the notion of uh, non-resistant non-belief. Um, and basically he says, look, if God's, uh, is sort of a simplification of his formulation, but if God is perfectly loving, God's going to be always open to relationship with um, everyone, right? Um, I mean, he thinks that uh, openness to relationship is, that's a pretty minimal requirement on counting as perfectly loving. Like if you're going to be a perfect lover of humanity, at the very least, you're going to be open to relationships with everybody, right? Um, but on his view, openness to relationship um, involves at least being willing to remove obstacles arising on your side of the relationship um, to that relationship, right? So like um, if, uh, you know, let's say I'm at a park, right? Um, and I'm open to relationship to, uh, you know, with whoever's at the park, right? I'm open to chatting and, you know, things like that. Um, I, minimally, what I would do is like take off headphones that I'm wearing, um, you know, maybe set aside anything else that indicates that, you know, I don't want to hear from you. Um, you know, if I've got a vicious dog next to me, like, you know, maybe I'd, you know, do something to set the dog, um, you know, tie the dog up elsewhere so that people could approach, you know, things like that. I'd, I'd be doing things that remove obstacles to relating to me, right? Mm -hmm. um, and Schellenberg thinks, you know, a pretty, um, a pretty minimal way of removing obstacles to relationship with you is to at least let people know that you exist, right? Um, and so, so Schellenberg thinks, this is why I said it relies on the notion of non-resistant non-belief. He thinks, um, if God's perfectly loving, God's going to be always open to relationship. And if God's always open to relationship, well, God's removing obstacles to belief in God. At the very least, then you ought not to find anybody who is not believing in God. Um, sorry, there shouldn't be anybody who is um, not believing in God um, and also not resisting belief in God. So in other words, like the only people who you should find not believing in God are people who like they've got something within themselves that is resistant to belief in God. Like people who are open to belief in God, you would expect a God who's open to relationship with them to go say, hey, look, guess what? I'm here, right? Um, but he thinks we do find non-resistant non-belief in the world. Um, if you uh, if you say, as I'm inclined to say, like, you know, how do you know? Like, people aren't always the most reliable uh, reporters of 
their own resistances and so on. They're not even always the most reliable detectors of their own resistances. What Schellenberg will eventually go back to is um, just like prehistoric peoples, right? People who were around um, before, uh, you know, before Judaism, before Christianity, people who, uh, you know, existed before the concept of God that is in play in those religious traditions even showed up on the scene, right? And he'll say, surely those people didn't have belief in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or, you know, the God of Christianity. Um, and they couldn't have been resistant to it. They didn't even have the concept, right? Um, so you've got basically now the argument is, um, if God, if God exists and is perfectly loving, there shouldn't be any non-resistant non-belief in the world for the reasons I just gave, but there is. Um, and so, you know, either God doesn't exist or God's not perfectly loving. Of course, the, you know, the Christian concept of God is the concept of a God who is perfectly loving. And so that's why it counts as an argument against, um, at least against the Christian God. Um, and Schellenberg thinks it's broader. He thinks it um, undercuts belief in any kind of personal God because he thinks the only kind of personal God that would be worthy of the label God would be one that's perfectly loving. Hmm. Well, thank you, Mike. That's very helpful. Um, and I would just add on that we can't like go through like all the different forms, but obviously there also are other forms of like divine hiddenness arguments. So when we're saying like the problem of divine hiddenness, um, you can talk about like the theological diversity or like that, like apparent emptiness, like thinking about like those, if you read like mother Teresa, like those kind of things um, as well, but it's helpful. Cause I didn't realize this as well. that like Schellenberger's argument is like, what's in your mind, I guess, foremost when you're thinking about like hiddenness in your book. So that's helpful. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So, um, yeah, so Schellenberg's argument is, um, I mean, basically, if you're going to contribute to the literature on divine hiddenness in philosophy, you need to have something to say about uh, about Schellenberg's argument, right? So that's mm -hmm. why that's the focus. Um, as I indicated, my own initial approach to the topic was more from absence of religious experience, mm -hmm. right? Um so, you know, my friend, for example, what she was lamenting was the absence of a kind of felt sense of God's love or God's presence, right? And you can generate a hiddenness argument that's based in that instead of on um, the phenomenon of non-resistant non-belief, right? Like you might if you wanted to formulate it as an argument for atheism and the way that Schellenberg's goes, you might say, you know, look, a perfectly loving God would um, at least, you know, say, I love you, <laughs> mm. right, to, um, uh, to people who are children of God or something like that, right? And yet, you know, what what we seem to find is a whole lot of people who are not receiving um, uh, what they take to be unambiguous communication of divine love. Mm -hmm. I mean, in a certain way, um, anything that uh, you think can very reasonably be expected of 
a perfectly loving deity or a divine parental figure, right? Um, and the absence of which you can understand as a kind of hiddenness. Um, that's going to be able to form the basis of some kind of divine hiddenness problem, mm -hmm. right? Um, so, you know, you might think that, uh, and, and, you know, people will vary on what it's, um, what they think it's reasonable to expect of God, right? Um, I mean, you, you know, like if, if you're a human parent who never, um, uh, never speaks verbally to your kids, um, and you're capable, like you speak verbally to others, right? Um, if you're a human parent who just never like opens your mouth in communication with your kids, a lot of us are going to think you're not really the best parent in the world, right? Mm -hmm. So you, you might even form, um, uh, formulate a hiddenness argument just based on the absence of widespread verbal communication from God, right? I and mean, of course, some people are going to say like, who are we to demand that kind of thing from God? And, you know, fine. Um, I'm just saying like, there, there are a whole lot of things that we expect from people who love us and that we expect from people who are parental figures for us that it kind of looks like, at least initially, it looks like we don't get from God. And those sorts of violated expectations, they're surprising, they're worrisome, and they're, they, they count as the beginnings of a kind of philosophical theological problem that you might reasonably call a hiddenness problem. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's helpful. So, Mike, now we're looking at like a response to divine hiddenness. Uh, one of the things that you outline in your book is like, well, we should think about different like attributes of God. Um, so when we're thinking about like the hiddenness of God, like what attributes of God should we be thinking about as we kind of formulate an answer, like contemplate hiddenness? Um, I guess you're mainly going to be wanting to think about your concept of divine love, right? Mm -hmm. um, and you'll want to be asking, um, you know, how, how closely that should map on to um, our just ordinary human conception of love. Uh, so that'll be one thing you want to focus on. Um, and I guess as soon as you start to ask this question, like how much does um, how much does divine love really resemble human love, right? Hmm. How legitimate is it to expect from our divine lover the sorts of things that we would expect from human lovers? Where you know, by lover, I don't necessarily mean like erotic love or something like that, but you know, our our parents are lovers of us, our siblings are lovers of us, our good friends are lovers of us. You know, so they're all human lovers, um, and we expect certain things from them in light of the fact that they tell us they love us. And you might ask, like, how, you know, how many of those expectations carry over to divine love, right? Um, to ask that question, I think, is to turn your attention to the attribute that theologians call divine transcendence or divine incomprehensibility, um, or, you know, uh, stuff along those lines. Um, and, you know, as you'll know, I, um, 
I kind of offer a two-pronged approach to addressing the divine hiddenness problem, one that focuses pretty heavily on divine transcendence, um, and then another that focuses uh, pretty heavily on the concept of uh, divine love. Mm. So when we're thinking about like hiddenness, we got to think about like God's transcendence. Um, and we also got to think about like divine love. Um, yeah. So let's kind of like look at these, Mike, when we're looking at like divine transcendence first, like what exactly does that mean? And then like, how is that going to play into like thinking about God's hiddenness? Yeah. Um, different people understand transcendence in different ways. Um, at the very least, the idea that God is transcendent um, sort of the idea that God is, you know, beyond us, beyond the world, somehow, um, uh, like not just uh, another ordinary citizen of the universe, right? But somehow uh, prior to and beyond it in some important way, right? Uh, sometimes that gets developed as the idea that God is just outside of space and time and the creator of the spatiotemporal universe. Um, uh, more often it gets developed in ways that um, suggest not only that, but also that God, um, like somehow human concepts don't apply to God in quite the same way that they apply to ordinary things, right? So um, uh, divine wisdom is uh, not exactly like human wisdom. Right. Uh, you have scriptural uh, passages that push in these directions. Right. So um, uh, there's the one where God says, you know, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Right. And a lot of people sort of focus on that as saying that, like, yeah, God is God's ways of thinking. What makes sense to God? What seems wise to God? That's all um, uh, beyond us in some important sense. Um uh, there's a passage that sort of says, you know, I'm not getting this verbatim, but, you know, um, uh, I guess it, it sort of connects up what's foolish in our eyes with what's, uh, with what God recognizes as wise, right? Um, and all, all of that points to the idea that God is, um, that in some important way, human concepts don't quite carry over uh, to God, right? Um, and you might think of this uh, analogically in this way. Um, like suppose, uh, suppose you had a bear um, parenting a lion cub, right? Or something like that. Like what the what the lion cub would expect from the bear parent might um, uh, like what the lion cub would expect parenting to look like would be very different from what the bear is giving, right? Because just the bear is such a very different thing from uh, from the lion, and so um, yeah, that that's a case of interspecies difference, and kind of the idea behind divine transcendence is like the gap between human beings and God. It's much greater even than interspecies difference or intercultural difference, right? Um, the stuff that God thinks might just be totally incomprehensible to us, 
what counts as divine love might um, might be very unexpected, right, in relation to our human conception of love and so on. Um, I mean, some people go so far as to say that divine transcendence just means that um, human concepts can't really apply to God at all, um, or that if they apply at all, they apply only analogically. Um, I mean, kind of the view that I go for in the book is what I call a sort of moderate conception of divine transcendence. Um, uh, I say that um, basically any concept that you don't get pretty much from scripture um, uh, is going to apply to God only analogically. Right. And it's, that's a kind of rough approximation. But um, so in other words, if you're if you're thinking about divine love and you have not derived the entire content of your concept of love from scripture, then you're going to be applying an analogical concept of love to God. Mm. You're going to be relying more on your notions of human love and so on and so forth. Um same for wisdom, same for goodness, uh, and things like that. Um, and I, I guess I think it's unlikely that many of us have um, concepts that we've really derived wholly from scripture. Like you might think, hey, I do my quiet time every morning. I read the Bible, you know, 15 minutes a day. So like probably I'm good on deriving my concept of love from scripture or something like that. And I think, no. That's like, like if you're going to have a concept of love that's derived entirely from scripture, you'd be someone who is just totally immersed in the Bible, totally understands it, you know, more deeply than um, pretty much anybody around you, uh, you know, and so on and so forth. And even then, um, uh, it might not be the case that you have a, that your concept of love is entirely a revealed concept of love okay yeah that's helpful mike so you're what you're kind of saying is that when we're thinking about divine transcendence i like that you like referred to like the difference between like us and animals because like for me it's very easy to picture like my dog and just thinking about like the cognitive differences between like me and my dog and like when i want my dog something to do some like to do something and maybe like the dog has no clue like why i'm having to like do it and what you're saying is then we have to think about like maybe like that relationship and now just imagine like us and God, like that's a whole other level. There's so much like a much larger difference um, in like the men, the life of God and like the mind of God than like our little minds and whatnot. Um, yeah. So that's really helpful. Yeah. But so anyway, so with that, um, it, so you, you might be thinking, well, so what does all this do for the hiddenness problem? Um <laughs> And the answer is basically it, that it, um, if you buy into what I'm saying about divine transcendence, then you have, um, you're buying into something that undercuts um, the inferences that Schellenberg wants to make from violated expectations to the conclusion that God doesn't exist, right? Mm -hmm. So the Schellenberg argument um, relies on claims like if God's perfectly loving, then God would do such and so, right? Um, and 
as you could probably see from when we discussed briefly alternative formulations earlier, like any any version of the hiddenness problem is going to rely on some kind of inference from a premise like if God's perfectly loving, then you'd expect this, right? Um, and then, well, but we don't find whatever it is that's expected. Therefore, the problem goes on. Therefore, God doesn't exist. And if you if you buy into what I'm saying about divine transcendence, that therefore gets undercut. Because um, if, uh, like if God is transcendent, um, that just implies that um, divine love, divine wisdom, divine goodness are going to violate our expectations about those things. Right? Um, if divine love is like, if God's transcendent, then divine love is going to be something pretty unexpected in comparison with what we understand human love to be. And so when you, when you make a claim like, if God were perfectly loving, then God would do such and so, um, the right response from someone who believes in divine transcendence is to say, well, now, wait a minute. Like, um, uh, it's true that if God was perfectly humanly loving, <laughs> um, then God would do such and so. But that's not... Um, uh, that's not the kind of love that we're predicating of God, right? Divine love is something different. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's helpful, Mike. So that's kind of like transcendence and you're hitting at like divine love. Um, like we got to think about like divine transcendence and like how limited we are in understanding like God and hiddenness. Um, how does this divine love really like flesh into like um, understanding divine hiddenness? Um. I'm sorry, maybe I maybe I missed part of the question. So um, is the question how, so one question is um, how divine love understood by someone who believes in divine transcendence might get into the picture. The other question is like, the other question might be, what about this other prong to the solution where you just kind of focus directly on the notion of divine love? Um, mm -hmm. I couldn't tell which one you meant to be asking about. I, I don't even know which one I was really asking it. Like both, both are very interesting questions to me. I'm just thinking, I guess maybe more towards the latter where like, when I was asking the question, I'm thinking we got, like, we got transcendence. Um, now what, how, like, how does love fit in? But obviously like at the end of the day, those two are going to come together. Um, yeah, so, I don't know. Take it where you see fit. Yeah, no, I, I got it now. Um, yeah. So, um, so the first prong of the solution basically says, Look, if God's transcendent, divine love isn't what you'd expect, right? And so the Schellenberg problem doesn't work um, because the Schellenberg problem relies on our expectations about divine love. I imagine um, this is easy for me to imagine because I used to be like this. I imagine someone coming along and saying, well, don't give me this divine transcendence stuff. Like if you say that divine love is very different from human love, um, like in a certain way, that's sort of like just saying God does not exactly love us. God has some other 
you know, attitude toward us or something like that. So like some people just don't like this divine transcendence idea or they, uh, you know, what they like is just the idea that God is beyond space and time, but they want to say, you know, human concepts apply perfectly straightforwardly to God. Um, in response to that first, I say, okay, fine, let's give you your assumption um, that when we say that God's loving, we're just perfectly legitimately using our ordinary human concept, right? Um, and then what I say is um, on that assumption, um, the Schellenberg problem gets off the ground only if you assume that divine love is, you know, what I would call ideal human love, right? Where ideal, um, ideal doesn't just mean perfect, right? Um, we're just, we're granting that, I, I, I guess, um, Sorry, I, ideal doesn't just mean the best possible. It means something like maximal, right? Mm. Um, so, uh, you know, ideal, an ideal knower is someone who knows everything, right? If you have ideal power, you've got limitless power. Um, and so I say like this, the Schellenberg problem seems to trade on the idea that um, if God is a perfect lover of humanity god will be an ideal lover of humanity which is to say that god will maximally love us right god will love us as much as it's possible for us to be loved god will be totally dedicated to promoting our good and to promoting union with us um and in the book, I give you know a number of you know I cite a number of things that indicate that people really do think this way. Um, uh, and when I give talks on this topic, um, you know I find that most people in the audience um, are usually thinking like at least before they come into the discussion, they're thinking like, yeah, if God loves us perfectly, God loves us maximally. God loves us as God is maximally devoted to our, um, <coughs> excuse me, to our uh, good and to our, to promoting our well-being and to promoting union with us. Um, and what I argue in this chapter on divine love is, um, no, that's not how divine love would work. Um, uh, I I borrow some ideas from Susan Wolf, who points out that, um, you know, she's got this famous paper called Moral Saints, where she argues that like a, a human being who's totally dedicated to um, promoting the welfare of others, uh, we, we don't, even though we might initially think a person like that is some kind of saint, like, in fact, when we think about it, we don't think we really don't think that's a good life to live or even a rational life to live. Um, like if you spend all your time and resources promoting the welfare of others, you won't have time or energy to, you know, become an artist. You won't have time or energy to uh, learn a sport. You won't have time or energy to learn to play an instrument. Um, you won't, you know, you won't go out for a celebratory meal because uh, 
you know, you could give the money to the poor, you know, or something like that. And we think like, you know, even though there's something obviously kind of wrong, if you're always going out for celebratory meals and ignoring the needs of others so that you could pursue your own self-improvement, we think that a life that includes none of those things is impoverished in a certain way, right? Mm -hmm. um, and God's got unlimited resources. But um, I mean, basically what to kind of cut to the chase here, what I point out in the book is this, this idea of maximal dedication to the goodness of others and to union with them, um, like that involves a kind of orienting your life around right? Um, and it involves a kind of loss of self. Um, and that's, that's part of why we think it's not good in the human case either, right? Like, um, the person who's totally dedicated to the welfare of others has no real identifiable self. Um, they have just completely sacrificed themselves for the people whose welfare they're promoting. It's, what I end up saying in the book is it's it's a kind of worship. Um, and once you see it that way, uh, you realize like, yeah, of course, God doesn't worship us. Um, the Christian tradition never said that God worships us um, or that it would be a good thing for God to worship us. Um, God's life is oriented most fundamentally around God. Um, and the you know, for any person of the Trinity, the most fitting objects of ideal love, like maximal devotion to the other's good and to union with the other, are the other persons of the Trinity. Um, God does love us. I mean, that's scriptural. That's part of Christianity. But there's no reason to think that the love God has for us is maximal. Um, and the, the payoff of that conclusion is um, it allows room for God to sacrifice our own short-term interests for a perfectly loving God to count as perfectly loving while sacrificing some of our own short-term interests to pursue some of God's own projects, what a, other projects, whatever that might be, right? Um, I'll, I'll pause there in case anything in that didn't make sense. No, I think that the like an analogy or example you bring up is helpful for enlightening like what you mean. Um, like if you think of someone who like is like is like self-sacrificial and like giving their life to like the poor, um, that's a good thing to do. Like no one's saying it's not a good thing to do. But if that becomes like all you do 24 seven where you're missing things like chances to like like you said, play a sport, learn an instrument go out with friends for like a celebratory dinner, like these things, if you're missing all those experiences because of your like, just like nonstop devotion to the poor, you're missing something. Um, and it seems like to me, similar, you're saying like with God, like um, maybe God isn't just always like totally just like into our interests, like just like pouring out to us, pouring out to us. But he's also thinking about like himself, like God himself is a personal like being. And just like, we have to consider that as well when thinking about like God's hiddenness. Yeah, yeah. No, that's good. Um, I mean, as soon as you say that out loud, you know, it's easy to see how people will start to object, right? So like mm -hmm. what? 
I'm I'm suffering here because God needed to go out to dinner with somebody. I, um, <laughs> yeah, I'm suffering here because God wants to learn guitar. Um, and the answer to those things is, of course, no. Right. Um, uh, when you know when my kids are suffering, um, uh, I make sacrifices to you know to alleviate the suffering. Um, uh, I don't, I mean, nobody expects any parent to make just absolutely any sacrifice to alleviate absolutely any kind of suffering on, um, you know, so, so basically the, the point of the, of introducing the ideas from Susan Wolf is to say perfect love is compatible with making some trade-offs, right? Mm. Um, but nobody's saying that the kinds of trade-offs God is making is like, you know, God needs to go out for a nice steak. Uh, so sorry, you get to suffer lots of divine hiddenness or, you know, something like that. Um, I mean, of course, people will say, well, then what is God doing? And why do you think God has, why do you think God has other projects that conflict with our short-term good? Um, and here I want to say two things. Um, First of all, like, here's where a little bit of divine transcendence sneaks in the back door. Like, God's beyond me. How would I know what these other projects might be, right? Mm -hmm. Like, this is exactly where we should expect to find ourselves in the dark. Um, but then the second thought is, um, like, what else would you want to say apart from God must have some other project? Um, and basically your only options when you're confronted with, like, when you're suffering in a way that it doesn't seem like, um, uh, a good and loving God should allow, right? Pretty much your only options for explaining what's going on is to say, well, I guess God's not loving or good or, I guess that's God letting me suffer this way for my own good, right? Like we recognize that as a justification or God's letting me suffer this way for someone else's good. We recognize that maybe as a justification um, or God's letting me suffer this way for some other good that I just can't even understand, right? And what I want to say is, like, if you think about the worst sufferings you've undergone, ask yourself, do you want to say that was really for your own good? Um, and people have been abuse victims, for example, like, that's a horrible thing to tell them. Oh, yeah, it was for your own good. Builds character. Like, that's an awful mm -hmm. thing to say. Do you want to say that it was for someone else's good? Yeah, it was to preserve the freedom of your abuser, you know, like, no, these are terrible things <laughs> to say to people, right? Um, it's much more plausible in some of those cases to just say like, you know, I don't know, there must've been some other good. Um, I mean, of course, atheists want to say, no, the best answer is there's no loving God, right? That's, that's what you say about these cases. But to this, I respond like, you know, what, why think, um, what basis do I do I have to rule out the possibility that 
a God totally beyond me might actually have some perfectly good reason that I just can't understand for allowing this sort of thing, right? Yeah. And I mean, importantly, if I like, if I've got other reasons for believing in God, um, which pretty much, I, you know, I think that's the case for, I think most people who believe in God, if they do it rationally, they do it because belief in God makes the best overall sense of um, their, uh, their experience in life and um, the background beliefs that they bring to the table. Right. And if like if you've got reasonable belief in God and then you're thinking about some suffering that you've undergone. Right. I think the sensible thing to say is, um, I, you know, I don't know what goods uh, were served by that. Um, I can't be expected to know. Um, but, you know, I, I can't rule out that there were some I can't rule out that God was allowing that for some good reasons. Um, and so this isn't a reason to give up my belief in God. Yeah, that's, that's really helpful, Mike. One of the things you talked about in your book that is super interesting to me um, is you talked about how there's ways that like maybe people are like interacting with God and not even realizing it. Um, so when we're thinking about the problem of divine hiddenness, Mike, like, what do you mean by that? Cause I think some people will be like, why well, I, I never experienced God or I never interact with God. Um, and you like kind of flesh out a way where people can, you can help people see like maybe they actually are. Um, yeah. Can you kind of flesh that out? Yeah. I, I think the, the term I'd rather use is something like participating in relationship with God or, you know, okay. something like that. Um, uh, and I, I guess there, there are a couple ways this might go. Um, so um, maybe the easiest, uh, easiest initial description is um, to reference this scene that a lot of people be familiar with from uh the last battle by c.s lewis um mm -hmm. it says in the chronicles of narnia series um there's a, a a bit in there where um you know aslan the lion is like the christ figure in the narnia books um and tash is the god of the people who don't follow aslan right um, and it turns out, you know, toward the end of the last battle, um, there's this one guy who's been worshiping Tash. Um, and, uh, but it turns out that he gets to go into whatever the analog of heaven is in the, in the Narnia books. And he's kind of puzzled by this. Like, what, you know, I can't remember if it's him who's puzzled or if it's other people who are puzzled, but at any rate, like, Someone finds this totally puzzling. What's this worshiper of Tash getting doing, getting welcomed into the group of people who loved Aslan, right? Um, and Aslan's response is, um, you know, like, like the way he was conceiving of Tash um, and the things that motivated his worship uh, and stuff like that, like, like it was really sort of keyed on to Aslan and Aslan's attributes, right? Um, in a certain way, he was a bad worshiper of Tash because he didn't get the picture right about what an evil demonic character Tash is. 
um, and was, you might say, sort of confusing Tash for Aslan. And Aslan says that counts, right? So you might think like that's one way this could go. Um, I think one of the suggestions that I mentioned in the book that's due to someone else is like, you know, some people are really, um, uh, they're enamored with, um, you know, goodness itself, right? Uh, or beauty itself. Like Socrates was, you know, thought the forms were the coolest thing in the world. Um, you know, these like paradigms of perfect beauty and perfect goodness. And he thought these were like abstract objects that you get to go commune with in heaven. Um, uh, heaven, not like Christian heaven, but just, you know, like you're an immaterial soul. Eventually, when you die, if you've succeeded in getting rid of earthly attachments, you'll get to just go commune with perfect beauty and perfect goodness and perfect love and so on. Um, and a lot of people in the Christian tradition have thought, you know, Socrates, like, you got the story wrong, but um, but you were barking up the right tree, <laughs> mm. right? And, um, you know, the writings of Plato, uh, which is where we find all this stuff about Socrates, the writings of Plato have exerted a tremendous influence on Christianity because basically Christians thought, like, this guy, he's, he's a pagan. He doesn't believe in God exactly, but he's very much barking up the right tree. Um, mm -hmm. And you might think like part of what was going on there is, um, uh, you know, Paul talks about now we see through a glass darkly, right? Well, folks like Plato and Socrates and stuff, they were seeing through the glass really darkly, um, but still they were getting, they were getting enough of the truth to be, to count as participating in relationship with God, even if, um, they didn't sort of recognize it that way. Um, the other thing I sort of talk about in the book is how seeking God um, and, and sort of depending on how you're led along in that process, um, that by itself can count as participating in relationship with God, right? Even though while you're see even though while you're in the midst of it, you might think of yourself as not doing that at all you might in fact be frustrated because you haven't unambiguously found god yet um uh but you know it might be that at the end of all things when you look back you realize no there was this kind of um ongoing dialogue and partnership between god and me that i just didn't even realize at the time right mm -hmm. um you know, I have friend, I had friends in high school who, um, uh, you know, they were Christians and then they went through a rebellious period, you know, uh, times where they would lose their faith and find it again and lose their faith and find it again. Um, and I imagine uh, people will look back on those times and some of them will look back and say, yeah, that was that wasn't a period where my relationship with God had breaks. That was a period where I was persistently in a conflicted relationship with God. Right. Um, one of the, my wife's a minister. Uh, she's the pastor of our church. One of the best sermons that she's ever preached. Like I just find it totally moving. She talks about um, 
I forget the passages that she uses, but she goes to one passage where it's in one of the it's in one of the prophets, um, uh, where God is looking back on Israel's time in the wilderness and describing it as like this was this was our honeymoon time, right? And then she goes back to um, Exodus and looks at the time in the wilderness where and just all the you know conflict and God getting irritated and you know Israel uh, you know being told that they're being stiff-necked or you know whatever and it's like this time in um, Exodus when you're when you're reading Exodus you see like just all this conflict and difficulty and so on and so forth and yet you learn in this prophetic book that God looks back on all that as just like, this was all just like honeymoon and wasn't this nice, you know? And so like there too, like you, you might, what looks here on earth, like maybe even a relationship with some severe breaks, non-interaction and so on, it might be glossed over from the later perspective of heaven as like, no, this was, um, this was all good, like, at a certain level, all good interactive uh, relationship. Mm. Okay, yeah, that's very helpful, Mike. So thank you. Um, here's another question, maybe just kind of like relating to that. One thing I've thought about like recently in terms of like thinking about like walking in a relationship with God or like interacting with like, or not even not interacting, but like this like experience of God kind of thing is that kind of through things like maybe like service to others or uh, through love, like through these good acts, like we are actually like experiencing like the divine. Maybe we don't like actually get the like actual, like, Oh, like God just touched me on my elbow right there. Or I just heard him say like, good job, Zach from above. But like through, like when we do these good things, like we actually are experiencing um, or we can even say interacting with God. Like, do you think that's the case? It's just a thought I've had of late. Yeah, yeah. No, and I, I think that is totally scriptural, too. I mean, there's the bit where Jesus says, you know, um, it's one of these passages where people are getting sorted, you know, and um, Jesus says, you know, look, when, uh, or they, I guess they say, like, when, you know, when did we ever, you know, see you naked and not clothe you, you know, mm. um, uh, or sorry, he I guess, first of all, there are some people who he, he sorts onto the good side and says, you know, when I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you came to visit me and so on. And they say, like, you know, when did we see that? Right. Um, and he says, whenever you did it for the least of these, you did it for me. And then the people who get sorted on the bad side, you know, they also ask the same question. And he says, whenever you didn't do this for the least of these, you didn't do it for me. Um, but I think one way of understanding this idea of, um, when you do it for the least of these, you do it for me is at least part of what goes on there is you get, um, you get some experience of Christ as you, as you say, do these particular good things, right? You might get it in two ways. You know, you are functioning as the body of Christ on earth um, and doing these acts of ministry. Um, and so there's that sense in which, Christ is present to you in the act, right? You you are literally functioning as Christ's body here on earth. 
But then there's also the bit about when you do it for them, you're doing it for Christ. And so, you know, if you, especially like if you see it that way, that can be a mode of experiencing the presence of Christ too. Hmm. That's really helpful. Um, one more question, Mike, and we'll start to wrap up. Uh, so how would you, like, we've talked about a lot of different things here and I want to kind of like, as best we can kind of tie this up to help people understand if someone was like approaching you, maybe from like someone that's not like a educated philosopher or like does stuff like this um, and asked you like, well, like I live my life and it just seems like God isn't there. Uh, how in like a couple minutes would you kind of like give like a explanation or something like that of like, well, well, why does God seem hidden to a lot of people? Um, Yeah. I'm trying, I'm trying to think of which of a couple different um, uh, responses I'd want to give. Um, let, let me set aside the why question for a second and tell you the first thing that I'd say to such a person, and then I'll, and then I'll address the why question. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, the first thing I'd say to someone like that, and I have, I mean, I have said this to people, um, is tr- like just. So I, I, I mean, I've said this to people who are outright atheists, you know, but also to people who are, um, uh, you know, they have some kind of Christian background or something like that. Um, I mean, just try <clears throat> not as if they've never tried it before, but try um, try persisting in prayer. Um, and in a way where you're actively looking not for a particular way for God to be showing up in your life, but for just whatever way, um, just for anything that like might be a sign of God, however sort of unusual or whatever. Like, I, like get it in your head that... Um, uh, like the whole world is, it's like, uh, you know, you could think of it as like a museum that um, has been set up by a curator for um, for you to move through and to learn about the curator from, right? Mm-hmm. And be looking for divine communication just everywhere um, and see what emerges, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I, I mean, I anticipate people saying, well, I, like, I've done that, you know, and nothing happens. And that's why I'm ticked off right now. And I like part of what I want to say is, um, like, do it again, do it some more, um, do it very much in conversation with scripture, like while you're, you know, reading the Bible, looking for God to be speaking to you, right? Um, I, so there's that bit of advice. I'll give the why bit now, and then I'll address an objection. Um, the, so the bit of advice is connected to my theory about why people don't uh, experience God. And this is... This theory applies to my own lack of experience of God, you know, whenever I've had that. Um, 
like our so our experience of all kinds of things is deeply shaped by the background beliefs and um, uh, assumptions, and fears, hopes, desires, um, knowledge, you know, whole, like a whole variety of what you might call cognitive attitudes. Our experience of things is heavily shaped by this stuff that we bring to the table, right? Um, wine tasting is one area where this sort of goes on like i'm no wine expert but um the line that i've heard and i've i've had this experience with other flavors the line that i've heard is um when you have background beliefs about what's in the wine that's when you can taste what's there right and that doesn't show that you're like making it up it shows more just how much your background beliefs and so on shape your perceptions, right? If you have training on read on how to read an X-ray, you'll be able to see things that people without the training can't see, right? And that's because like the background stuff that you bring to the table actually impacts your perceptual experience. Um, and if you like, if you fill your head with scripture um and approach the world with uh and approach your services in church and so on and so forth with um uh a kind of lens that says you know god may well be speaking to me here and now and i gotta be on the lookout for it um you'll be a lot more likely not guaranteed but a lot more likely to have genuine experiences of the presence of God or of God communicating with you than if you, um, you know, than if you approach church or daily life or whatever without that kind of sort of cognitive lens in the background, right? Mm. Um, now, I, you know, a concern about the advice that I gave is like what, you know, like, what do you say to people who, you know, they're going through terrific suffering and so on? You tell them, you know, look around for divine communication um, uh, and see what you see. I, you know, mightn't some such people like look around and say, like, I guess what God's communicating to me is God hates me, right? I guess the communication I'm picking up from God is that God is like evil and abusive, you know, or God's you know, laughing at me as I suffer or something like that. Um, I do think it's possible to get a kind of cognitive lens uh, that where you pick up those kinds of messages. Um, and here, I guess I just want to say, like, the advice, the the thing that I offered as advice, um, uh, it's not going to work for everybody. And I, I wouldn't, I've given that as advice to a lot of people, but it's not advice I'd give to literally everybody. I mean, some people are going through suffering or whatever, where you just want to, like, the last thing they need is that bit of advice. They need something much more pastorally sensitive, right? Um, so I, I just want to acknowledge that, like, yeah, that's a possible experience that people could be having, too. Um, you know, I'm going to want to say those aren't genuine divine experiences because like God doesn't hate people. God loves us, you know, and uh, so what's going on in that sort of situation is um, it's a kind of um, 
I guess it's another kind of divine hiddenness or something like that. And that needs to be dealt with in a much more nuanced and complicated ways that's attentive to the particular details of the situation. But just at a kind of general advice level for ordinary believers going through life, it's like, just get more of this cognitive lens that um, is full of scripture and is, you know, looking at the world as an arena of ongoing divine communication. Um, uh, I, I think that's, I mean, I think that is basically scriptural advice, right? Like what, what you find in scripture on how to draw near to God and renew your mind and, you know, um, get close to God and all these sorts of things it, it all sort of boils down to like pray and read the Bible. Um, you know, uh, and I think the, the line that I have on how religious experience works and why it is sometimes absent or how it can be acquired, I think it helps to explain why that's good advice. Mm. Okay. Yeah. That's really helpful, Mike. Thank you so much for your time today and coming on. I've really appreciated it. And there's a lot of insight here. Um, maybe like one share, if you have any like last thoughts or anything you want to say before we wrap up and two, just share like, like what projects are you working on? Like if people are following you and your work, like what's coming up in the future? Um, yeah. Um, last thoughts. I guess I don't have any off the top of my head. That That's I totally already fine. Communicated. Um, <laughs> uh, future work. Um, I guess I, so on, on divine hiddenness, I, I have not, um, uh, I have not worked out this paper yet, but this is one that is very much that I've just kind of been thinking about for a year. Um, so I, in the book, I talk about how, um, there's a kind of learnable skill um, of experiencing God. And it's something like, you know, getting this cognitive lens in place and so on. Um, and I've given a lot of thought to, um, you know, like what about people who just can't do that for some reason? Um, and there is some evidence from uh, some empirical evidence that like, there are some folks, like some people just have an easier time um, having experiences of God than other people. Um, there's actually a kind of uh, a psychometric scale you can take where scores on that scale, it's the Telegon absorption scale, scores on that scale seem to correlate with capacity to have uh, what we describe as religious experiences. And so I've wondered if there's a kind of, um, if there might be a way of understanding um, just the inability to have certain kinds of religious experiences on the model of disability. Um, and if that might be in any way fruitful for thinking about divine hiddenness. So that's, that's one kind of upcoming project that's related to, uh, to this issue. Um, I've got a few others in the hopper too, uh, but, but that, that's the one that connects up most with our conversation. So mm. hopefully sometime in the next couple of years, I'll end up thinking that through and writing it up. That's awesome. Mike. Uh, one more quick thing. If people want to like follow you or connect with you, um, how can they do that? Um, 
I'm on Twitter. Um, so you could follow me there. It's, I think it's at Michael Ray ND uh, or something like that. Um, I think you can, I think you can follow my Facebook page too. Um, like I think there's a follow link, although I don't post a ton of stuff there. So, um, so maybe Twitter is the best place to, to go. Um, I post papers on my website too. That's www.michaelray.org. Well, I'll leave a link down below where people can follow and connect with you, Mike. Um, thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, everyone, for listening today. This is Here in Apologetics. If you're new, I encourage you to like, subscribe, um, all that fun stuff. And if you value what we do, uh, you can go become a patron at patreon.com slash Here in Apologetics. Um, by this time this comes out, this will probably be about early July. So we're looking for one new patron in the month of July. If that one could be you, that'd be awesome. Um, but yeah, that's that. Mike, Thanks for so. thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. Have a good one, everyone, and God bless. We'll catch you.